And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you sit, uh, keep Revelation chapter 3 right there in front of you. If you don't happen to have a Bible and a seat back somewhere nearby, you'll find a copy of God's Word. Grab that and get it in front of you this morning. This is the, the seventh of the seven letters we are studying here in this series. Next week, we begin a new study called The Household of God, uh, a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of 1 Timothy. I'm so excited uh, for that study together as a church. And so we turn there uh, next week. But before we're there, we're here. And uh, let, me, let me start with a bit of an odd uh, a bit of an odd thing. Uh, when we approach a water faucet in our day, uh, we're accustomed to having two options in front of us, um, hot and, and what? Hot and cold. Hey, all of us in here, we are accustomed to, uh, on a water faucet, two options, hot and cold. Now, I want you to imagine uh, that you only ever had one option as it came to water temperature, and that, and that option was lukewarm. And so a hot, summer, sunny day, and you want a cup of cold water, not, not happening, lukewarm. Uh, you're looking forward to a refreshing hot shower at the end of a long day, not happening, lukewarm. You want to relax in a hot tub? Nope, lukewarm tub for you, okay? The only option ever given to us would be lukewarm water. Now, it might seem like an odd way to start a sermon, but it's actually perfectly in line with what Jesus is doing as he addresses these, this church in Laodicea. 
Yeah, he is using uh, their, the reality of their water to illustrate a spiritual reality of their heart as a church. Now, Laodicea was a city on a major east-west trade route in Asia Minor. And because it was on this major east-west trade route, Laodicea was actually a very prosperous area. Uh, throughout its history, their leaders continued to make uh, really good decisions that actually led to greater and greater and greater prosperity. Laodicea was the kind of place that if you were traveling through, you would stop and go, whoa, there's, there's money here. You knew it by the amenities of the city. You knew it by the houses. You knew it by the clothes that were being worn. Laodicea was rich. It was affluent. It was prosperous. Now, uh, for all of the wealth that Laodicea had, there was one really important thing that Laodicea did not have. Water. Uh, there was no source of water in the city, and so uh, they built an aqueduct that ran somewhere in the neighborhood of six miles long to, to pipe water into the city, and it's from this reality that there's no water in the city and that they pipe in this water that, that Jesus will pull out a powerful spiritual reality about them as a church. But before we get to what it is that Jesus addresses, we need to look at how Jesus identifies himself as he addresses this church. Verse 14, it says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So just as we've seen in all of these letters, Jesus identifies himself in some specific and unique ways to each of these churches. As he begins to address the spiritual state of the church at Laodicea, he calls himself the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. Now, now why, why the amen? Um, when we say amen, right? For the longest time growing up in the church, I just said amen. I had no idea why we said it, right? When we say amen, we're saying we agree together. We can confirm together. We verify together. When Jesus identifies himself as the amen, he is saying there is nothing more true. Jesus is the truthiest truth there is to agree upon. There is nothing else more sure that we can say amen to. He is the very amen of God. And he picks up on this when he then says that he's the faithful and true witness. Throughout the book of Revelation, the theme of a faithful witness is a very important theme. Jesus identifies himself as the very faithful and true witness. Uh, John, in his gospel, John, the same one who penned Revelation, wrote a gospel or an account of Jesus' life, and his gospel begins with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now the Word has come and dwelt among us. Jesus has come and he testifies to who God is. He himself is God. Jesus is the very imprint of God and he's testifying or witnessing to that. And it's important that he identifies himself to the Laodiceans in this way because they have not been faithful and true in their witness. And then he says he's the beginning of God's creation. A very important way for him to identify himself to a rich, prosperous, independent people. Says Laodiceans, you are not at the center of the creation. I am. It was all made through me and it was all made for me. In fact, in a letter written to a sister city of Laodicea, we find these words of the Apostle Paul. He's the image of the invisible God 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is Christ. And he identifies himself as the beginning of all creation. And so he addresses this church and he has a stinging rebuke to give to this church. But he says, I am the amen, the very amen of God. I am the faithful and true witness and I am the beginning of creation. And now he's going to address their spiritual state. And this letter is all about this right here. And this message is all about this right here. Jesus stands and knocks today, inviting a spiritually needy people to acknowledge our neediness and be called from our lukewarmness. Jesus stands and knocks today, inviting a spiritually needy people, that's us, that's them, to acknowledge our neediness and be called from our lukewarmness. I believe he does this in four parts of this letter. The four parts that I'm calling this. The meaning, the malady, the medicine, and the motivation. And as we walk through this, we need God's help to give us ears to hear. And so if you would, bow your head. And I want to read a section of Psalm 119 over us as our prayer to prepare our hearts for the word of God today. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And all God's people said, amen. Let's look first at the meaning. What exactly does Christ mean? What's he calling out in this lukewarm state? Verse 15, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here's the meaning. Here's what we mean. Here's what we're talking about when we're talking about this lukewarm reality. It's this. A lukewarm faith is the dangerous state of living spiritually useless. A lukewarm faith is the dangerous state of living spiritually useless. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. And, but in order to explain that, let me, let me acknowledge that I, if you've grown up in the church or around the church any amount of time at all, you have probably heard this passage taught on. If you haven't heard this passage taught on, you have for sure heard this passage referenced. Like, hey, don't, don't have a lukewarm faith, right? We, we've heard that. We've heard that. And often when we hear teachings on that or references to that, what's often communicated is, is that, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus wants you fired up. He wants you on fire, your faith on fire. And, 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 and he doesn't want you in this kind of lukewarm, this middle, this, this, this riding the fence. And so he'd, he'd rather have you all in or he'd rather have you all out. But he, he doesn't want you riding the fence. And I actually don't think that's what Jesus means here. 
I actually don't think that's what he means by lukewarm. I don't think he's saying that hot equals good and, and cold equals bad and I'd rather you pick a pole than, than just ride the fence, so to speak. And, and I want to show you why I don't think that's what this passage means. Because here's the deal. When we come to understand the Bible, we can't impose like the language and the culture of our day in trying to understand what was going on and said in that day. We actually need to start in that day and then apply it to our day. Y'all with me on that? And so uh, the, the question I have, and I think there's two contextual clues why I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, the first contextual clue has to do with something Jesus says to them. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. And then he says this. It's really interesting. Would that you were either cold or hot. I desire that you were either cold or hot. If, if in kind of the way a lot of times this passage is taught, if to cold means to be totally out on Jesus, would Jesus desire that? I don't think so. And so it seems that Jesus, when he's saying, I would, I would rather you be cold or hot, he is saying, I'd rather you be cold or hot. And so then the question is, how would the original hearers in Laodicea have heard and understood that? What is the context of their world and their city that would have framed the way they heard what Jesus is saying? Now, if you remember, I said Laodicea was like a city with everything, but there was one thing that it didn't have, and that one thing was, it was water. Uh, and Laodicea was actually the kind of the chief city of a, a, a three-city, uh, it wasn't a metroplex, but a tri-city area. Now, you had Heropolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. About six, six and some miles north of Laodicea was the city of Heropolis. And all three of these cities were known in some way for their water. Heropolis had these amazing hot springs, these naturally fed hot springs. In fact, if you Googled Heropolis to today, you'd see pictures of people soaking their feet in the hot springs in this area of Heropolis. And so this made Heropolis a, a kind of a center of, of healing. Just as we would soak sore muscles in a hot tub, people would go to these hot springs of Heropolis to seek healing for their body. Uh, south of Laodicea was the city of Colossae. Colossae was known for its ice-cold water. The, the mountain melt would run off the highlands and would run down into these deep streams, and, and you could dip a jar in, and, and you would experience this ice-cold. I mean, they were, they were ice mountain before ice mountain, okay? You, know, this, you would experience this cold, refreshing water from Colossae, and Colossae was known for that. If you, were, if you were in, lived in this day and were in Colossae, you would go to one of these deep, pure springs and, and be refreshed from this cold water. And so the hot water of Heropolis and the cold water of Colossae. And yet the reality for the people of Laodicea is the reality I started, the question I started the sermon with. What if it was lukewarm all the time? Because for the people in Laodicea, it was lukewarm all the time. The water which flowed through the aqueduct six plus miles away would be warmed to a nice lukewarm temperature for you. But it wasn't just that that was unrefreshing about it. As it flowed through these aqueducts, there was mineral buildup over time. And, and so in different times and different seasons, you, your water would take on the taste and the smell of this mineral buildup that would happen in the aqueduct. And, and, and 
certain other seasons, uh, as the water was exposed to the different elements, there were contaminants that would happen and you would get sick. And so when Jesus says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. The people in Laodicea knew what it was like to spit out sick, stinky, no good tasting water. They knew exactly what this referred to. So I don't think hot and cold is good and bad spiritually. I think what Jesus is saying, I would rather you be hot. I'd rather you be an instrument of spiritual healing in the hands of the ultimate healer, me. I'd rather you be cold. I'd rather you be a source of spiritual refreshment as you walk intimately with me, the spiritual refresher. I believe the context of what Jesus says and the context of where we find the city lends this to be a better interpretation than just uh, some general sense of our apathetic faith. Now, um, the question is, how, how, would, uh, how, would, how would the Laodiceans have heard this? What, what, what would it meant for them to live in this reality of, of a hot faith, spiritual healing? being carriers of the gospel to those in their city who did not know Jesus and who apart from Jesus faced an eternity in hell. How do we hear that? What does it look like for us living as Jesus followers here in our city to live out this reality of being spiritual healers as carriers of the gospel that we would bear witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ that would lead another's heart to ultimate spiritual healing. Let's, let's just acknowledge that. That around us, there's a plethora of people separated from Jesus Christ in desperate need of spiritual healing. Uh, the friend you love with a quiet drinking problem does not ultimately have a drinking problem. At the heart of that problem screams a need for spiritual healing. Screams a, re a need to replace a Lord on the throne. What does it look like for us to live a hot faith proclaiming the gospel to someone in need of spiritual healing? The coworker who's crushing it. And you know what I mean by crushing it? Some of you are like, I don't know what you mean by crushing it. They got it all. They work more and more hours to make more and more money to buy more and more things that they can't even enjoy because they just keep working more and more hours. They're a workaholic by definition. Listen, their ultimate problem is not work-related. And their ultimate problem is not career-related. Their ultimate problem is there's something, there's some searching going on in a heart. What does it look like as carriers of the gospel to be instruments of spiritual healing in the hands of the ultimate healer? Your typical neighbor, your normal neighbor, they're typical in every way. Typical marriage, living in a typical house, driving a typical 19, no, I'll go 2007 Honda Civic. Living a typical life, there's no big problems, just the typical problems of life. And there they are on your typical patio having a typical barbecue. 
And yet you sense as you talk to them, there's something that they're trying to understand of like, what's the point of all this typical life? Like, there's no big problems. We like our marriage. Our kids are doing okay. But, but what's this all about? What's it look like for us to be spiritual healers in the hands of the ultimate healer as we proclaim the good news of the gospel that puts this whole life in its context? And I believe the Laodiceans and their affluence and prosperity have just grown comfortable with not living a life of passionate witness, spiritual healers in the hands of the ultimate healer. What's it look like to live as spiritual refreshers? What's it look like to live handing cups of cold waters to fellow weary travelers in this pilgrim journey of following Christ? What's it look like to hand cold a, cup a cup of cold waters to weary travelers? Um, yes or no? To follow Jesus, we need some refreshment. You with me? To follow Jesus, there needs to be ministry of refreshment that happens among us. If we were running any race of any length, there would, be, there would be little stands along the way and you could run by and you'd grab a cup of water or you'd grab a Gatorade or you'd grab a, a banana or an orange. I wish they had Snickers. And, and, and you, would, you would be refreshed as you run the race. What does it look like to live a life of spiritual refreshment? You know those people. They're the people who send you the timely texts and you're like, how did they know? Like, how did they know that passage, that word, that's exactly what I needed? There's a guy who will text in my church. He doesn't text often, but when he does, I'm like, yeah, baby, come on, bring it. Because I know it's going to address some specific thing in some specific way that's pointed on right what I'm going through because he's been in the word and he's been in prayer about it. And these are the kinds of people, these spiritual refreshers, who on this, this weary pilgrim's journey, they walk up to you and they lift their chin and they're like, let's go, it's going to be all worth it. I know it's hard right now, but one day we're going to be in his presence, we're going to hear well done, let's go, you ready, let's roll. More of that. Instead, in Laodicea, there's no passion for witness and to bring the spiritual healing of the gospel. There's no passion for spiritual refreshment. They're just rich and mad. I don't want to be rich in math. I don't want us to be rich in math. And this is exactly what is going on in this church. Now, how does that happen? I've alluded to it throughout the first point. What's the malady? What's the disease? What's the ailment that leads to this kind of lukewarmness? What I'm arguing is spiritual uselessness, spiritual, uh, spiritual ineffectiveness, uh, this, this, this faith without works, as the book of James might describe it. What's the malady that drives that? Look at Jesus addresses that, verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's the malady that undergirds all lukewarmness. It's this, a lack of spiritual neediness is the leading cause of spiritual uselessness. A lack of spiritual neediness is the leading cause of spiritual uselessness. Remember, I've defined lukewarmness as spiritual uselessness. 
A lack of spiritual neediness, the leading cause of spiritual uselessness. Look at what it says here. I want you to notice in verse 17 the two parts of it. It's the, the first part is you say, right? You say. Here's what they say about themselves. But then Jesus has another part. He says, no, you are. Here's what you really are. For you say, here's what they say, I'm rich. And they were. By all accounts of what we can tell, most of the church in Colossae was probably enjoying this, the, a similar amount of affluence that the people of the city were. Most likely, in order for them to enjoy that level of affluence, it meant they were compromising their faith through allegiances to trade guilds that we've talked about earlier in this series that would have led them to compromise their faith. But they were rich. Many of them, by all accounts of the known world at the time. They say, we're rich. And they say, we've prospered. Their riches have led to prospering. Business is expanding. Houses are expanding. They're prospering in every way. And now listen to me. Listen to me. This is so, I love you. I love you. I love you so much. The issue here isn't rich guilt. The issue here is what their riches and prosperity have led them to say, a heart posture in which it's led them to live. And that is evident in what they say next. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Folks, that's a dangerous place to be. When we've come to the place where we say, we need nothing we are autonomous. We are powerful and independent. We have need of nothing or no one. In fact, um, in, in their history, uh, some 80 years before what we're reading right here, that earthquake I mentioned in another, uh, another sermon, uh, that, that same earthquake devastated this area as well. Laodicea had so much money as the Roman Empire was offering financial help for the rebuilding, they said, no, we're good. We have plenty. We're fine. We're good. We need nothing. This was the spirit of Laodicea. Jesus looks down, though, and he says this. No, but you are. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. You're not realizing that you are wretched. You're pitiable. You're to be pitied. You're poor. You're living with an illusion of richness. But I look down and say, you're poor. You're blind. You cannot see with spiritual sight that I ask you to see with. You're naked. You're exposed. The malady that had led to the lukewarmness, the prosperity has, had led to a lack of spiritual neediness, and this spiritual neediness had led to lukewarmness. Folks, let me remind us of something today. We are needy. You're like, I don't like that. I don't want to be called needy. I know what I think of the people in my life I label as needy. I don't want to be one of them. We are needy. Can you think of any other church context that's seeking to grow, grow in a soil of a culture whose supreme values are riches, prosperity, and self-dependence. Any other church context come to mind? 
Church in America, watch out. Because we swim in a culture that values riches, prosperity, and independence in ways we might not even see influences the way we think and do church. Redeemer Bible Church, watch out. Because we got to be humble enough to acknowledge we're growing in a culture that values riches, prosperity, and independence more than we might not even know. I think about the early days of our church. Uh, the most expensive thing we owned was that keyboard. Seriously, I'm not exaggerating. It was that keyboard. We're like, how are we going to buy this keyboard? And God in six and a half years has been so good to us, so good to provide for our church. How good has he been? Look around, church, look around. In the beginning, it was, we always felt like we were halfway there. Uh-oh, living on a prayer, right? Some of you are just getting, ah, see what he did there. Church, listen to me. We're still, uh-oh, halfway there living on a prayer. Nothing has changed. We are needy. He is worthy. I don't care how much money you have sitting here today. If you're not defining your riches by the way Christ defines riches, you are needy. I don't care what kind of prosperity we've enjoyed. We are needy. I don't care how strong and independent we might think we are. We are needy. In fact, it's the delusions of our strength that will actually lead us to our greatest weaknesses until we come to the place where we actually believe in our heart that it's when we are weak that we are strong because his power is made perfect in weakness. If you know in your head that ultimately your greatest need is not found in your riches, but you're, having struggle, you're, you're struggling to believe it in your heart, can I ask you this morning to look out at the day of your death? As morbid as that might sound, but to ask this question, what will my, what will my riches mean the moment the doctor declares time of death? We are needy. We are not autonomous. We are dependent on a creator God. We are needy. We cannot be good enough to save ourselves. We need a great savior. We are needy. And this is what Jesus is showing them. He says, you say you're rich. You say you're prosperous. You say you have need for nothing. But I look down and what I see is someone who is pitiable, Someone who's wretched, someone who's poor, a church that's blind, a church that's naked. And now, but Jesus doesn't just leave them there. Listen to me. In every one of these letters, how good is our Savior? That he doesn't look and say, oh, that, that's, that's awful, that's hideous, I have nothing to do with you. But he draws near. He gives them medicine for the malady. He tells them what they can do about this. Look at what he says here in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy We'll come back to that. That's an interesting play on words there. I'll counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Here's the medicine. Here's the plan. What do we do about this malady? 
What do we do about this? Jesus stands and knocks, inviting us to acknowledge our neediness and receive his spiritual riches. Jesus stands and knocks, inviting us to acknowledge our neediness and receive his spiritual riches. Now, let let me unpack this medicine here. In each of these three verses, I want to pull out one word from each of these verses. The first word is buy. He says, I counsel you to buy. Church at Laodicea, you are so used to when you have a need, you just go buy something for it. You need this, go to the hardware store, buy it. You need this, go buy it. You need this, go buy it. This is a play on words. Jesus says what you ultimately need, you cannot go buy in your stores. You must buy from me. Your ultimate needs will be found when you look to me. He says, buy from me gold refined by fire. You got to understand, Laodicea was a major banking area of its day. These people knew their gold. They knew what it was like to walk into a bank, to get gold, and to walk out. Jesus says, that's not the gold I'm talking about. I'm talking about gold refined by fire. I'm talking about this picture of godly character we see throughout the scriptures. You can only find that from me. He says, "Uh, buy from me um, uh, um, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. This, this area was a leader in textiles, these beautifully bright colored uh, clothing and, and robes. And, 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 and Jesus says, you don't understand that what you ultimately need are the white garments, the, the garments of purity and victory that only I can give to those who repent of their sin and trust in me. That's what you need. You can't find these at your Laodicean Nordstrom. You can only find these in me. He says, come to me for gold refined by fire. Come to me for the, for the white garments. And then he says, come to me for salve to anoint your eyes. This area, would actually, they actually made in this area salve for, for different eye problems that people would come and they'd buy this salve for the healing of their eyes. And Jesus says, that's not the salve I'm talking about. You need spiritual sight. You need to see with spiritual eyes. And you can only buy these things from me. And so the, the first part of this medicine is to buy from Jesus what can only be bought from him. But, but then the, the, the second part of this medicine is repentance. Look at verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now, I just want you to take a moment. What do you notice from that verse? You don't have to answer me. I just want you to take, think about it. What do you notice from that verse? Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. If you're like me, I'm a doer by nature. I notice I'm an exhorter by nature. So what I notice in verses like that, be zealous and repent. You know how, right? You see how I be zealous and repent. Got it, Jesus. Let's go. How do I do it? Don't miss the beginning of the verse. What's it say, church? Those whom I, those whom I love. Every time we're reproved by Jesus, we're reproved from a place of his love. Every time we're disciplined by Jesus, we're disciplined from a place of his love. Every time we're exhorted for greater gospel zeal, we're exhorted from a position of his love. Every time he tells us to repent, he beckons us to repent repent from a position of his love. He loves his bride. It's why these letters are being penned from him. I know these letters have had heavy and hard and and convicting parts to them, but all of it is literally written by his love to his bride, the church. He beckons, repent, out of my love, repent. And so he says, buy from me these things. Be zealous and repent. Then he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. I will come in and fellowship. The Laodiceans have gained riches and prosperity. And the more they have gained, the more Jesus has been crowded out to the outside looking in. And he stands there in his gracious and patient pursuit of his church and he knocks. This week I had a chance to be at a conference in San Antonio, a church planning conference with a church planning collective we're part of called the Great Commission Collective. And uh, it was a spiritually refreshing week and physically tiring week. And we got to our gate at San Antonio Airport and so we sat there, the the flight got canceled. And so I was down there with a couple other guys on our team, Ethan and Jeremy. And Jeremy and I were taking that flight out. And so we looked at each other and he said, what do you think, man? Let's drive this thing, right? And so off we took from San Antonio to uh, Indianapolis. We got home midday Friday. Uh, got the kids to bed Friday night. Grabbed my favorite biography right now. Sat down on my couch for a home couch advantage reading time, right? Just, just chill. And I'm right as I sit down, I'm settling into my couch. I hear on the side door... And I looked for the go to voicemail button, but I couldn't find it. And so I got up and uh, walked, I got, I got up and I walked to the door and I opened the door and in came a neighbor we love for a, a quick time, a quick visit. Um, I say, let, let, let's just break down the anatomy of a knock, okay? When someone knocks at the door, it pulls us out of the state, whatever state we're in, it pulls us out of whatever we're doing. Could it, you could be having dinner, knock on the door, you go to the door, you open it. Could be busy around the house, you go to the door and open it. Could be just sitting down for a restful time, you go to the door and open it. Listen, uh, Jesus is standing and knocking. He wants to come in and fellowship amongst the church again. That's what he's telling them. I'm ready to come in and fellowship. I'm ready to come in and eat with you again. How did Jesus get to the outside of his very own church in the first place? God, may it never be. God, may it never be. But Jesus, in his love, he pursues. He beckons them, buy from me that which is true spiritual riches. Repent. I stand at the door and knock. Open the door. Now, if we need any motivation at all to take this medicine, to be delivered from the spirit of lukewarmness, here is the motivation. Verse 21, the one who conquers... The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's the motivation. The promise of the throne with Jesus one day must beckon us from our lukewarm life here today. In every one of these letters, we come down to the end, and what's Jesus do? He holds out hope for the conquerors in Christ. He turns our eyes vertical. He gets our eyes on a kingdom that is not a kingdom of this world. He says, Laodiceans, you think that you've been living like royalty. You have no idea how good it is to come. Laodiceans, you, you think you have it all. You think you're building your own kingdom. There is a, such a better kingdom. Get your eyes up to another throne. Get your eyes up to another throne. Redeemer Bible Church, beloved followers of Jesus, get your eyes up to another throne. Don't spend your life building many kingdoms here. 
Don't spend your life worried about living like royalty here. There is another kingdom coming, and the king has invited us to his throne. Don't miss that. I know, I said it once, I'll say it again. I know these letters have been so convicting, hard, and heavy in points. I know they've convicted us of our sin. I know they've humbled us. I know that, that they've called us to repentance. But I want us to understand something. These letters were written by Jesus, the Lord of the church, to call this beloved bride of his just back to himself. Get your eyes on his kingdom. And may our eyes never leave there. And so this series is done. <laughs> but what this series has called us to can never be done. The day the glory of Jesus depart, the, the Lord, the day the glory of Jesus, the Lord of the church, departs from the church. Oh, God help us. Because, church, Jesus is the Lord of the church, and this is all about him. This is all about what he wants. In each of these letters, he's telling what he finds pleasing in his church. He's calling us away from what he doesn't find pleasing, and he's reminding us of the promises that he holds out to his people who follow him. This is all about him. Lest we forget, let me turn back to Revelation chapter 1 and remind us how the book began. How did the book begin? The book began with a vision of who? The book began with a vision of who? The book began with a vision of Jesus. The book began with this awe-inspiring vision of Jesus, the Lord of the church who's in the midst of his churches. And then this Lord of the church who's in the midst of his churches, he begins to pen these letters, to record these letters. John, write what I'm saying down. Because he loves his church and he longs to be the Lord of the church. And so these letters are all about Jesus. And then lest we forget, let me remind us where this book goes immediately after these letters are done and who this is about. Would you just stand with me as I read for us what this says after the letters have been recorded. It says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first verse, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, uh, there was as if there was a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Who's this all about? It's about the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you are slain and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The church, it's all about the glory of the Lord of the church forever and ever and ever. Church, sing, sing.